Okay, if you have a Bible with you, maybe you could turn with me to Luke chapter 1. Uh, while you're finding it, I wonder whether you could uh, swiftly turn to the person next to you, assuming you can do uh, multiple things all at once. Uh, turn to the person next to you. I want you to ask them a question. Uh, what is your favorite Christmas song? Okay, so person next to you, favorite Christmas song. Okay, I think that's probably enough. I did only ask for one song. Uh, how about if we uh, share, share with others uh, your, your favourite songs? What, what kind of things were you talking about? I heard a Mary's boy child over here. Um, a- any others? I, uh, yes, that, uh, I, I can see why. Um, uh, any others? Joy to the world, thank you for rescuing the thing. <laughs> any others? Bleak midwinter, yeah. Oh, yeah, I hear an U and an R over there as well, yeah. Yeah. Uh, any others? The Calypso one we did last week at the carol service. In fact, if you come next Sunday, you might even hear it here uh, in our carol service. Little plug for that. Now, when you think about it, the birth of Jesus uh, has inspired more music than any other event in all of human history, from Bach to Handel to Charles Wesley to the Pogues and Slade. There's something about the birth of Jesus that just cries out for music. And what we're going to talk about today is the very first song that was inspired by Jesus' birth. It's arguably the most influential song ever written. It's certainly viewed by critics as one of the most profound and insightful songs. And it was written by a girl, probably somewhere around 13, 14, 15 years old. Her name was Mary. Now, if you look at some of the most successful female singer-songwriters over the last few years, whether it's, I don't know, Adele or Amy Winehouse or, or whoever, there's something that gives their songs power and poignancy from the background that they're writing from. And I think that's certainly the case when it comes to Mary's song. For Mary, these words that we're going to be looking at this morning weren't merely words. In a very real sense, she actually had to live them. A lot of people don't realize when Gabriel came to Mary, told her the news that she was going to have a child, this wasn't particularly welcome news to her because she wasn't married. This meant she'd potentially be a teenage single mum. It's hard enough being in that situation nowadays. It was way, way harder back then. You see, according to the law, someone in her condition was supposed to be stoned. She could die because of this news. She should have lived in fear, not knowing whether or not that was going to happen to her. What she did know for sure was that somebody who was pregnant outside of marriage would be the subject of all kinds of rumours and ugly gossip and speculation. And then, of course, on top of all of that, there was the very real risk that her fiancé, Joseph, could reject her. And that's not to mention that she's a first-time mum to none other than God. I mean, for a teenage girl, that's quite a lot of pressure. Let's face it, Mary is in a season of life where she has a great deal to be worrying about. But astonishingly, rather than worrying 
We're going to find her in the passage we're going to look at today. We're going to find her worshipping. So let's look at the lyrics of the song she sang. They're found in Luke chapter 1. We're going to pick it up in verse 46. Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord. How my spirit rejoices in God my Saviour. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He's scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He's brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham and his children forever. Now, as you may know, this song is more famously called the Magnificat because in Latin it starts with that word, my soul magnifies or glorifies from the version I was reading from, praises the Lord. Basically, to magnify something is to give it an extraordinarily large place in your life. It's as though your mind wanders to it whenever you have nothing else to think about. Your desires get shaped around it. Your identity gets tied up in it. Your joys and your sorrows are all wrapped around whether you're getting more or less of this particular thing. And I think it's fair to say we all magnify something. It's part of being human. It's part of the human condition. Some people magnify money. Some people magnify food. Some people magnify getting ahead in their career. Some people magnify sex. Some people magnify approval. Some people magnify security. We, we all magnify something. Mary magnified the Lord. And as we're going to see, it's a funny thing. When you magnify God, when you begin to see how great and big and vast and good and holy He is, it changes the way you look at every other aspect of your life. It's like everything gets put in a different perspective when you start off by magnifying God. Problems just look very different. Fears get smaller. Worries get smaller. The future gets smaller. Relational problems. When when there's this really big God, everything else just gets put into proper perspective. So really, all I want to do today is show you a little bit of what Mary's song teaches us about God, because it does have a tremendous amount to teach us. Incredibly, just in this short song, Mary highlights at least 11 aspects of what God's like. And as we look at each of these 11 aspects, these 11 truths about God, and yes, it is going to be an 11-point sermon today, uh, in, in the normal space of time, I assure you, as we look at each of these truths about God, my hope and my prayer is that they help you refocus from the problems and the troubles and the difficulties that just weigh you down and raise your gaze to see more of the God who towers above it all, bringing hope and joy and peace and life into our lives. And so, 
Before we get into this, I want to pray, and I want to almost pray the words of the song we've all been singing at the beginning here about God opening the eyes of our hearts that we might see more of Him. I want to pray that over us before we go any further. Father, I thank You that Your desire is for us to know You. Thank You that You want each of us here today, whatever our background, whatever we're facing, whatever situations we're in the midst of, You want us to know you more. And I want to ask you that as we look at these profound words of Mary, you would use them as a tool to to grab our hearts, to grab our attention, to fill our minds with thoughts of you, to expand our grasp of what you're really like. I, I want to pray that there would be that raising of our collective gaze this morning to see you as you really are, and, uh, and, and for that to change and impact deeply our lives and the things we're facing right now. God, I pray by your Holy Spirit, come amongst us and show us more of God. Amen. So what do we learn here? Well, the first thing we see in Mary's song is she celebrates the fact that God is Lord. Verse 46, right at the beginning of the song, oh, how my soul praises the Lord. Basically, what that means is that her God he's in charge. He's the Lord of all. He's above all other kings and all other kingdoms. He's above everyone and everything. There is no one beyond him. Now, as Mary focuses in on her life and her future, what will happen with my fiancé, my reputation and my family and how will I feed this child and how will I raise him? How will all of this work out? This truth about God is of immense comfort for her. What she says is, you know what, regardless of my situation, regardless of my circumstances, the Lord is in charge and I trust Him. Now some of you, you're struggling with relationship problems Maybe stuff's going on in your family that is like this kind of huge dispute that's just vexing you. Maybe you are here today and you are facing huge questions about the future. You need to know the Lord is in charge. Over all of that, over all the confusion and the uncertainty, the Lord is in charge. I want to appeal to you to trust Him. Second thing, we see in Mary's song, God is Saviour. Verse 47, how my spirit rejoices in God, my Saviour. Saviour means rescuer, deliverer, hero. How many of you, you, you watch a film and it's all pretty dark and pretty bleak, then the, the hero shows up and you're like, yes! I mean, that, that's pretty much the story of all of our lives. Like Mary, we all need a Saviour. From beginning to end, the Bible is God's story of human history and His involvement in it all on a rescue mission as the hero. He's the Saviour. That's a funny thing when you think about it, but ultimately, Mary's own son would end up being her Saviour. Jesus would be born He'd live a life without sin, he'd die for her sin, then he would rise for her salvation. In a very real sense, her son would be her saviour, and ours too. God is saviour. Thirdly, God is all-knowing. Mary sings in verse 48 how he took notice 
of his lowly servant girl. And from now on, all generations will call me blessed. You need to understand, in the eyes of the society she lived in, Mary was pretty insignificant. She's in Nazareth, not Jerusalem. She's single, not married. She's young, not old. She's poor, not rich. No one would have taken any notice of her. But what she says is, nonetheless, God knows me. And God loves me. And God pays attention to my life. And God knows my needs. She's saying, my God knows everything. He knows that I'm young. He knows I'm poor. He knows I'm pregnant. He, he knows that my reputation is going to get destroyed by this. He, he knows I don't have a whole lot of resources at my disposal right now. He knows how, that my life is going to be difficult and complicated from this point on. My God knows. Listen, this is where your view of God is so incredibly important. A lot of people effectively just think of God as some distant force. He's powerful, but impersonal. That's certainly not the God that Mary believes in. He's alive. He's living. He thinks. He feels. He speaks. He loves. And he knows every intricate detail of our lives. God knows every hair on your head, the Bible says. God knows every longing of your heart. He knows every day of your life. God knows it all. There are a lot of people. But God knows every single one by name. And he pays attention to the exact detail, the circumstances of their life. And he's a father who's attentive to every detail in the lives of his children. Maybe you're struggling financially. Maybe there's a situation you're facing, it just feels unjust. It's just unfair. Maybe you're you're, you're gripped with fear about the future. Maybe there's medical stuff going on in you or in people that you love that, that is just frightening. God knows. God knows. That's what Mary's celebrating here. Do you believe that? Do you believe that God knows about what you're facing, what you're going through, what you're battling with at the moment? If you do, then like Mary, I suggest you'll end up more of a worshipper than a worrier. God knows. Fourth thing we see here is that God is mighty. Verse 49, for the mighty one is holy and he has done great things for me. He's mighty. He's powerful. He's strong. And as such, he can do great things. Now, this doesn't mean that everything goes perfectly and it's always easy and you'll be a winner every single time, but it does mean that no one and no thing can ever thwart God. No power, no authority, no circumstance can ultimately stop God or prevent God from doing what he wants to do. It surely is a source of tremendous hope for Mary as she face such an uncertain future. Maybe feels like you are facing something of an insurmountable mountain right now. God is bigger. God 
is mighty. He's also holy. Verse 49, for the mighty one is holy. Now, I'm not going to dwell on this for long, but God doesn't do evil. He only ever does good, and he cannot tolerate wrongdoing in others. His standard is absolute perfection. And although, let's be honest, that makes it ever so slightly uncomfortable for us at times, would we really want a God who was both good and evil depending on his mood and was anything less than perfect? That God is holy is both frightening and also reassuring. God is holy. He's also personal. Mary says he has done great things for whom? What's the word? Me. Me for me. We've seen already how Mary was convinced that God was personally interested in her. And let me ask you, do you think that's true for you? Do you you share this same conviction? Can you, right now, readily think of some of the great things that God has done for you? Maybe you can't. I don't know, maybe you're struggling right now with despair and discouragement, maybe even depression. I'll just suggest one thing, I reckon it would be really helpful for you. Why don't you keep a journal, some kind of written record of evidences or examples of God's grace and His goodness to you, so that you, like Mary, could look back over it in the days, the weeks, months, years to come, and say, oh, he has done great things for me. Here's the evidence of it. Think about it. What's he forgiven you of? What's he teaching you right now? How's he changing you? What, what circumstances has he saved you from? What, what opportunities is he calling you to? I'm telling you, your whole perspective changes when you're able to go back over all that God has done for you. If only we could remember then we'd have to conclude with Mary that he's done great things for me as well. He's personal. Seventh, God is merciful. Verse 50, he shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. God is merciful. That that means he withholds from us the judgment that we deserve as sinners. And he replaces it with grace, giving us good things we don't deserve. Now, Mary couldn't have foreseen the full extent of God's mercy that would come to future generations through the son she was going to give birth to. But there's this wonderful prophetic nature to these words here. Through Jesus' death, he would bear the just punishment for our sin so that we wouldn't get what we deserved, instead we would get mercy. Again, some of you maybe are acutely aware of the things that disqualify you from knowing God. Maybe there are things in your past, things you've done, things you are doing, that you think drive a wedge between you and God. You feel disqualified. You feel he can never accept you. He can never love you. Maybe you you carry a sense of shame. Maybe you you describe how you feel as as, you just feel dirty a lot of the time. 
God is merciful. God is merciful. His mercy is sufficient for you. It covers everything in your past. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. God is also sovereign. Verse 51, his mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and the haughty ones. He's brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. Those are big words from a teenage girl in a small rural town. She had no human rights. She had no civil rights. She was very much under the rule of Caesar. What she says is, ultimately, Caesar's not Lord, God is. And Caesar, yep, he sits on a throne, but above that, there is a much bigger throne. And my king rules over all kings, and his kingdom is over all kingdoms, and he's the sovereign one. And he gives me dignity, and he gives me love, and he gives me forgiveness, and he gives me mercy, and he really has done great things for me. And he even knows the thoughts of people's hearts, and if they're proud, he takes them down. And if they're seated on thrones, I don't know, ruling and reigning as bullies and thugs and abusers like some husbands and fathers and kings are, well, God strikes them down with his mighty arm. And he defends this widow and the weak and the poor and the oppressed and young women like me. We have a real king, Mary says. You see, in all of this, Mary's confidence isn't in herself. Mary's confidence is in her God. God is going to establish a kingdom. He inaugurated it at the resurrection of Jesus. Right now, he's advancing it through the preaching of the gospel, the good news about Jesus, through the expansion of the church. And ultimately, it will culminate in the second coming of Jesus. You know what will happen then? There will just be one throne and Jesus will sit on it, and all dictators, and all rulers, and all those who are high and mighty and proud, whether it's kings, or chief executives, or politicians, everyone will be on their knees before his throne. And Mary says, I'm very patient. I'm looking forward to that day. Because why? God is gracious. Mary sings of how he has exalted the humble. I think, bearing in mind something of her own situation, I reckon what she's talking about here is those who have been humiliated in some way. Maybe you have been humiliated. I don't know, maybe parents have said harsh things to you. Maybe one or other of your parents walked out on you when you were younger. Maybe you've been cheated on lied to, lied about, betrayed, had people say things about you behind your back. You've been beaten, abused. What Mary says is, my God is gracious. He takes those of us who have been destroyed and he gives us dignity. He takes those of us who in the world's eyes have little or no meaning or value, or purpose, and he bestows on us dignity and grace. You know, it's a big part of what we do at Church Central. 
You know what God does to those who are disgraced? He gives grace. We want Church Central to be a place, a community, a family where there is grace for those who have felt humiliated in some way, those who carry a sense of disgrace, where they know that God exalts those have been humiliated, that he actually uses their life and the story of, of God's redemption in their life as hope to others who have been humiliated, because God is incredibly gracious. And so, although Mary doesn't know what will happen, she does know who God is, and it changes everything for her. God is gracious. God's also generous, Verse 53, Mary sings of how he has filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. Mary was poor. She knew what it was like to have hunger. She's living in this rural community. If the crops don't grow, you don't eat. And what she says is, he has filled the hungry with good things. Her, Her experience of God is that he gives He is incredibly generous, and he hasn't changed. As James, Jesus' brother, put it, every good and perfect gift comes from God. So every week we gather together as a church to celebrate God's ongoing goodness and generosity to us. And as a church, we recognize that the main way that God shows his generosity to others is through us. It's why we launched our hardship fund earlier on this year. It's why we partner with organizations like Christians Against Poverty and the Caris Neighbor Scheme. Why? Because God's generous. And what it means to be a worshiper is to reflect his generosity. Not so we get glory, not so people think, well, they're wonderful. No, so that God gets glory. So people wonder, well, why are they so generous? That's because of Jesus. He's the most generous of all. He he gave his life that we might have life. And everything we have belongs to him. And we want to steward it in such a way that honors him and helps others. What Mary says is that her God is a generous God. He has filled the hungry with good things. And sent the rich away with empty hands. Now, let me just be very clear on this. It is not a sin to make money and be rich. It depends how you get it. It depends on what you do with it. If you work hard and God blesses you with wealth and you're generous, then praise God. But if you're greedy and you're stingy, and you hold tightly onto your money and your possessions because that's where all your hope is, you need to know you are going to leave this world empty. One day, you are going to have to stand before God and give an account for your life because ultimately, you either worship your wealth or you worship with your wealth. God's generous And if you have personally benefited from his generosity, it's only natural that you'll be generous too. God's generous. Then 11th. Not doing too badly here. God is eternal. Verse 55. For he made this promise to our ancestors, to Abraham 
and his children forever. And maybe some of you are thinking, well, this is all just too good to be true. It's never going to last. It's like, I I don't want to put my trust in all of this just in case everything changes, I get hurt, I get let down all over again. Mary's saying here, there is no expiry date on all of this. She says, it goes on forever. God is Lord, Saviour, all-knowing, mighty, holy, personal, merciful, sovereign, gracious, generous, forever. Mary says, that's my God. And so what does she do? She sings. She worships this God. Mary replaces worrying with worshipping. And that's what I'd like to encourage all of us to do, to replace the things we worry about with worship for God. I mean, let's face it, there's a whole lot to be worrying about at the moment. I've touched on a fair few things in this talk. Maybe you're worrying about how you're going to survive the in-laws in a few weeks' time, or the state of your finances come the 1st of January. What's supposed to be the season of peace often turns into a season of anxiety. And as we've seen, that very first Christmas was no different. So here's my question. What would happen if you followed Mary's example? What would happen if, if you took all of that energy that's being funneled into worry and anxiety right now and chose instead to channel it towards worship? You see, basically, there are only two ways to live your life. First is what I call the bottom-up approach. But simply, you, you start with your life and your situation and your experience, and then you project all of that onto God. The result is, when things are good, you feel like God is a good God, and He's close, and He loves you, He cares about you. But when things are hard, you begin to wonder, is there really a God? I don't think there is. Or maybe God's so far away, and He's really not interested in my life. Or maybe God's an impersonal force, not a person. Maybe I'm on my own. I I don't really have any relationship with him. Or or maybe God is good, but he's powerless. He's impotent. He wants to help me. He wants to do good, but he's just not powerful, mighty, or strong enough. If you start, bottom up. You, You start with your feelings and your experiences, your sin, your sadness, your suffering. You project all of those feelings onto God. The result is... When you need him the most, you will run from him, not to him. You'll have questions about him, not worship for him. And you're going to end up in a difficult place. Some of you are there today. The only thing you're certain of is that your future is uncertain. What's going to happen next? How is this going to work out? Life has just got very complicated Maybe because of sin you've committed. Maybe sin that's been committed against you. Maybe a a whole set of circumstances you're facing that feel like they're spiralling out of your control. What happens if you start by focusing in on all of that? Inevitably, you'll worry. 
That's the bottom-up approach. The other way to live life is what I call the top-down approach. Starting point here is to assume that God really is who he says he is, that the Bible really is true. It reveals to us who God is and what he's like. And so we view all of our life in light of what God says and who God says he is. And so when we're suffering or we're sinning or we're anxious or we're frustrated, we're to trust in God and run to him, not away from him, and to help us. God gives us just a whole load of different people in the Bible who serve as examples. Some of them very negative, but they respond in ways that aren't great, that their life and their legacy suffer. It's like God gives them to us as warnings. Don't be like that. Other people respond to God in faith. They trust him. They trust his word. They trust his character, that God is Lord, Saviour, all-knowing, mighty, holy, personal, merciful, sovereign, gracious, and generous forever. They trust his promises, particularly in the midst of the most difficult of circumstances, and they stand as wonderful examples for us. It's this latter kind of example I think we get here with Mary. I want to encourage you, please learn from her please seek to follow her example.